Amen. Praise the Lord, everybody. Oh, come on. Praise the Lord, everybody. Amen. I hope uh, no one's too tired. We're going to be going over some stuff tonight. I'm very grateful. Amen. How many are glad to be here in the house of the Lord tonight? Amen. Just another day. We're so glad. We're so blessed to be here. I'm so blessed. I'm very grateful. Once again, I do want to honor my pastor and the leadership here at this church just for trusting me to give the Bible study tonight. Um, we've been going through a series of the Godhead, or we've been talking about the oneness of God. And um, the last time I taught, I gave a, a sheet of notes. I know many of you have it at home framed somewhere, and you review it nightly with your children. Praise God. Um, so here's the second part. There's some more after this and some more after that. But um, obviously, because of the time allotted, we can only hit so much. And so um, there were some things that I felt were very important um, in this somewhat of a oneness series. And tonight we're going to be going over the topic of, is Jesus God? Is Jesus God? And many of us, when we begin to talk theologically, many terms we kind of take for granted. For example, some will say that Jesus gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. Theologically, you know, Yahweh gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, right? Jesus is the human manifestation of God that happened uh, over 1,500 years later, right? And so theologically, there's certain terms that you kind of want to understand when you're having a real conversation about this. Um, so these are just some things that I felt we could go over today. Is anybody excited about learning about Jesus today? Anyone excited? Want to know more? Amen. Let's do this. So a few disclaimers, a few, uh, uh, just a few notes um, I hope everybody got a sheet. I, I'm not, I don't think pastor got one. Ushers, if you can get pastor a, a sheet, I don't think he got one. But please, everyone, if you don't have one, please get one. Uh, next time we will translate these into Spanish. I'm very sorry about that uh, tonight for our Spanish speakers. Please forgive us. Um, so why apostolic? So we call ourselves apostolic. And just a real quick recap. If I got in an accident or you got in an accident, someone rear-ended you. And then eventually they jumped out of the car. And as people usually do, they said it was all your fault. You were reversing. You messed up. You were on your phone. But really, they were the ones texting. And they were the ones not paying attention. They rammed into you, right? And then it becomes a big thing. And let's just say, let's just say, they took it to some court session or whatever. And this person who hit you, told, he told his wife when he, when he got home. And then his wife told her cousin. And then her cousin told their friend. And then they call that friend into the court as a witness. And this person is now four times, three to four times removed from the actual eyewitness account. They were not there like everybody else. And I would ask you the question, do you think that that person would be a good witness? Would they be a credible witness? This person who heard the story from somebody, who heard it from somebody else, who heard it from their cousin Lulu, who heard it from the actual person who was there right? How far removed do you have to be to still be a good witness? And what I would say is we want the actual person that was there, right? We want the person who understood what it was like, who turned when they heard the, when they heard the, the hit or who was watching the whole time, who felt that rush of adrenaline as soon as the crash happened. We want somebody who was actually there, right? And so that is why we call ourselves apostolic. Why? Because the apostles we're given the authority. Everybody say apostles. The word apost term apostle means a messenger or a sent one. And the apostles who were sent by Jesus were actually there with him. 
when they had a question, Jesus would teach and then he would be done teaching. He'd walk away and they would ask him questions to expound on what he said, to give us more. Oh, what did you mean when you said this, Jesus? And then he would explain it to them, right? So we believe that the clearest example, or rather the most um, credible source about Jesus would be those who walked with him. As a matter of fact, everything you read in the New Testament Not one of those words, ready, was written by Jesus. Not one of the testimony accounts was written by Jesus. Everything was written by an eyewitness or somebody who was very close to an eyewitness. And so everybody here or every Christian, if they want to actually take the Bible seriously, then at some point or another, they have to admit to themselves that they too must be apostolic. Does that make sense? But all we do, the difference is that we do not believe in creeds or traditions as authority. In other words, if the Pope comes tomorrow and makes some statement and says that all Christians, all Catholics have to go to Ash Wednesday or they're going to hell, right? The Catholic, because they believe that the Pope's word is infallible, they have to believe that. But we don't see anything outside of the Bible as authoritative. Somebody say amen. So if pastor or myself or any other life group leader got up here and started preaching something or saying something outside of the Bible, then that is no longer considered authority. It all has to be founded in the word of God. Someone say amen. Amen. And that's really important today. And that's why we call ourselves apostolic, because we follow the apostles' doctrine. Amen. So the Bible is the ultimate authority. Church creeds, traditions are not. Now, the second thing is, as we look at the New Testament, we have to understand that these books were written by people who understood Jewish tradition and religion. And they understood from a Jewish Hebraic mindset. Now, you and I, many of our thoughts, many, much of the uh, ways that we think have been influenced by pagan ideas. For example, and, and this is not I'll give you an example. Uh, when we go to church, we go to church on, on Sunday. Now, Sunday was named Sunday because it was supposed to be the sun's day. And so I don't call it Sunday. I call it the first. No, I'm just kidding. Obviously, we don't worship the sun. Uh, S-O-S-U-N, sun, on Sunday, right? We don't worship the sun on that Sunday. But you see, many of the things that we live by, Thursday is Thor's day, right? It belongs to the god Thor. That's why they named that. So much of our culture is influenced by pagan things. Now, I'm not saying don't call Thursday Thursday. Uh, and if you call Thursday Thursday, you're going to hell. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just trying to show you how much influence the world has or how much influence pagan ideology has on our current thoughts. Can someone say amen? And, or at least our current culture. And so what happens is The Jews, when they were writing, they understood from a Jewish mindset. And the number one most important scripture that was hammered into their heart from the time they were children to their adulthood to the day they died was Deuteronomy 6.4, otherwise known as the Shema. And it says, and I gave you two translations here. The Young's literal translation, which takes the actual Hebrew words and gives you like the actual translation um, in the most literal sense of it says, Hero Israel, Yahweh, our God, is one Yahweh. Or it says, Hero Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. That's the ESV. 
And so this was the concept they had, that God was one. Nowhere will you ever find an idea of the Trinity developed until centuries after Christ walked the earth. And we went over that the last time. Someone say amen. And so this set the Jews apart from other religions. There was no other religion with the same one God tenets that Judaism had. There was no mention, there was no interpretation of the Trinity until centuries after Jesus walked the earth. And the next disclaimer introduction I want to give is the oneness modalist view. This is the view that we carry here at this church. That there is one God and he manifests himself in as many ways as he wants to, as many modes as he wants to. He is the Father, he is the Son, he is the Holy Ghost, he was the burning bush when he spoke to Moses, he is our rock, he is our, our fortress, he's our foundation, he's our Savior, he is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. He can be anything he wants to be at any time. And so that's what we believe. Now, a few resources, things that I've drawn a lot of my information from, a lot of my teaching from, not only our pastor, not only the search for truth charts and just growing up in this, um, and not only the word of God, but some books that kind of organize this, I mentioned right here for you. Um, so, so you can go ahead and check those out whenever you'd like to. Why don't we open up to Matthew 16, 13 through 15. Matthew 16, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 15. I did not include that up there uh, on the notes, but if you can get that and go ahead and put that up. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Here's what it says. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that the son of man, that I, the son of man am? And they said, some say that you are John the Baptist. Some say Elias and others, Jeremiah. And some say you're one of the prophets. And Jesus said unto them, or he saith unto them, but whom do you say that I am? Turn to your neighbor and say, who do you say he is? Who do you say that he is? That, that, that is the most important question here today. This is what divides so many denominations. This is what divides the Muslims from, from the Christians. This is what div divides us oneness people from Trinitarians. It's what divides everybody. It all hinges on this one question. Who do you say Jesus Christ is? And that is the question we want to ask ourselves. So there are varying views of who Jesus is. I, I've included some, a handful of them for you today. I hope you're, I hope you're not tired. I hope you're awake and you're ready to, to, to follow me with this, but I think it's very important. Um, let's keep going. Arianism. So this is the first view. This is a modern day uh, Jehovah's Witness view uh, of who Jesus is. And they believe that Jesus is a demigod. He's a created being of greater rank than humans, but not equal to the Father. In other words, if you have the Father up here, who is God Almighty, and then you have human beings over here, that Jesus is somewhere in the middle. He's somewhat above human beings, but below the Father. And uh, there's some other, they believe that the nature of Christ changed. In other words, um, what happened was many times we hear about the Council of Nicaea. Everyone say Nicaea. Some of you didn't say, everyone say Nicaea. Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea. That happened in 325 AD. Now, one of the things I went over the last time that I was teaching was that the Trinity doctrine was not actually established in 325 AD. The Trinitarian doctrine that they believe today, that if you do not believe this and you're a heretic, that was established around 381 AD at the Council of Constantinople. 
This Council of Nicaea, 325 AD, was almost a battle between Trinitarian believers or people who ascribe to a more Trinitarian view that Jesus was the second person in the Godhead. Oneness believers who were almost on the side with them, and I'll explain that, against the Jehovah's Witness or the Arianist view is the actual more uh, reason, um, accurate way to say it. And what they were establishing was that Jesus, uh, what they were condemning, excuse me, was that Jesus was a human being who became divine. And so you, myself, and the Trinitarians agree that this is not true. We believe that Jesus was born God, that the spirit of almighty God rested in him, that he is the manifestation of God. That is what we believe. So we agree to some extent, but we condemn the idea that he was just a human being that somewhere along the way, maybe at the baptism, when the Holy Ghost descended upon, as it says, John saw the Holy Ghost descending upon him like a dove, that they believe that it was at that moment that he then grew or became who he was supposed to become and was then elevated to almost a point of a, a demigod status, but is not 100% equal with the Father. And so this was their belief. We do, not or we do not believe that, and we'll get into that later. And so the reason why the modalists or the oneness view and the Trinitarians teamed up in this council was because it was almost like the term, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The council, if I were to read it to you, there are things that we agree with in there. We do not disagree with that council, but what developed afterward, we disagreed with. And so there's that. Next uh, view of Jesus is the successive revelationist. We're not going to get super into that, but pretty much the idea is that the father became the son and was no longer the father. And then the son became the Holy Ghost and was no longer the, was no longer the son anymore. So it's almost like the, the uh, water, ice, and gas, or the liquid, gas, and ice um, concept of water, which that is something that we do believe. But in this sense, it's the idea that if you have water, it's liquid. And then you freeze it, it is no longer a liquid. And then you put it in a heated place, and it becomes a gas, and it's no longer a solid. Does that make sense? It, it continually changes its nature and, does, and ceases to be what it was before. Once again, we do not believe that. And then the Ebionism. And these were a form of Judaizers. Now, this is very important. We're not going to get into this. This is a whole other Bible study. Um, we, I had some of the leaders under me study this uh, for a time and to ask ourselves, do we still follow the law of Moses? And many of us can't really answer that. But these people believed that after you were converted as a Gentile, that you had to follow the 613 laws of the Old Testament. That means you couldn't eat lobster. That means you couldn't go to the taco truck down the street and eat your pastor con piña. You couldn't do that. You couldn't um, wear different... Uh, mixtures of linen on your dress. You had to make sure it was all the same linen. You couldn't work on Saturdays, right? There were all these laws that you had to follow. And so the Judaizers believe that once you're saved, you have to follow all those laws, right? And so one of their views was that Jesus was just a man whom the Spirit descended upon. So he was just like a prophet almost, whom the Spirit of God descended upon. And that's Ebionism. Then you have Trinitarianism. And this is the belief it first started off with just a die theism almost, 
um, or dinitarianism, binitarianism, excuse me, which is the belief that Jesus is the second person in the Godhead, yet co-equal and co-eternal and consubstantial with the Father and the Holy Spirit. I was watching videos about somebody, uh, a very known Trinitarian believer and uh, philosopher. His name was William Lane Craig. I watched many of his videos regarding apologetics, but I wanted to hear somebody explain the Trinity to me. And he was sitting in a class and he was talking to all of the people in his class. And it seemed that they were people of his church in the leadership. And a woman spoke up and she said, I've seen a picture recently that could kind of show what the Trinitarian ideology is. And she said, it is like one body with three faces, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And he noddingly agreed and said, that, that would be a pretty good depiction of the Trinity. Now, the first, when I heard that, I thought that sounds like one of the most pagan things I have ever heard of. That is my personal commentary on it. But that is a, a, a kind of a picture that they um, permeate that you can kind of see uh, what the Trinitarian believes. If you're following me, with me, can you say amen? Amen. amen. And then lastly, the, the last view we're going to talk about of, of the view of Jesus is Gnosticism. Gnosticism stems, stems from a philosophy that believed that materialistic things are evil and spiritual things are good or righteous. And so they believed that God would never be material, it would never be fleshly, would never be matter. Can you put up 1 John chapter 4, verse 2? So they believe that the creator is not the supreme God, but an emanation. In other words, we look at the creator of the Old Testament, and they say, that's not the supreme God. There's another God, or the ultimate God. And the creator is an emanation. Another term for emanation is a, a radiation or light that emanates from the sun. It's something that comes from another source. So they believe that the creator who created everything is just an emanation from the real God. And then they believe that Jesus was the highest emanation and that he had a, a phantom body. Now, when we read this scripture, many of us have not really understood what this scripture means because we do not know the context of the beliefs of that day. First John chapter four, verse two says this, hereby know ye the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Let's go to the next portion. Verse three, and every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist. We're good there. This is that. So John was looking at this common view of Gnosticism and was rebuking it, was completely exposing it and saying, there is no way, there is no way that you can say that Jesus had a phantom body, that he was just a ghost walking amongst us. He says, anybody who says that, they have the spirit of Antichrist. They have the spirit of Antichrist. They're coming against the truth, against the real gospel. He said, we beheld him, right? We saw him. We held him. We were with him. John put his head on his chest, right? There were nails in his hands, nails in his feet, a piercing in his side. We beheld him, right? And so he's exposing this. And we're not going to get too much into that. But the idea of this really influenced Trinitarianism. And we can study that later. So my question to you today is, we've heard what people say about who Jesus is. 
I've, I've given you a list of the most common views of who people say Jesus is. They say he's a prophet. They say he was just an emanation from God. He was a phantom body. He was not a real human being. Right? They say that he was somewhere in between a human and God. But my question to you is, what does the Bible say about who Jesus is? And that's where we always start. We start with the Bible. Turn to your neighbor and say, start with the Bible. So let's go to Isaiah 9-6. We're going to brush through a few of these, and we're going to land on, on, uh, on some and just uh, deal with them. Here we go, Isaiah 9-6. This is a scripture we always bring up. Um, if you do not understand the oneness of God, then, then I can see people taking this out of context. But it's a very clear view of who the Messiah is going to be. It says this, For unto us a child is born. That means it had a beginning, this child. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, or El Shaddai, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. We can stop there. So I'm trying to get you to understand the son, the child was born. There was a beginning to that. But yet the child that would be born, this scripture is talking about the Messiah, the child that would be born would also be the everlasting father, would also be eternal, would also be called the mighty God, the El Shaddai. That is what Abraham called, um, called, called God, the El Shaddai. So it's relating this, that whoever the Messiah is going to be, he's going to be the son. He's going to be a child but he's also going to be the everlasting father. And he's also going to be the almighty God. Can somebody say amen? Is anybody grateful for that revelation there? Amen. Next, let's go to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. This is Bible study, so I hope you brought your Bibles tonight and you're following along with us. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. You can mark it up and or take notes. I, I hope you're... Uh, are able to take notes, things that you maybe want to look into later that you want to dive into and just make sure I'm not lying to you. Amen. I'm not lying, I promise. Okay, here we go. Matthew chapter 3, verse 3. I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. It says this, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of Yahweh. You see when it's in all capital letters, that is the, uh, that is the English translation for Y-H-V-H, which we believe it is pronounced Yahweh. We don't have time to get into it. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, anytime you see L-O-R-D in all caps or you see Yahweh, then you have to understand that that is the personal name that God revealed himself as to the people of the Old Testament. He revealed himself like that. We're going to talk about that in a few, uh, the next scripture, actually. But it just says there, the voice of him that cried through the wilderness, prepare ye the way of Yahweh. Prepare ye the way of God. That's the only God, right? Hero Israel, Yahweh. There is only one, right? So he's saying, prepare ye the way. And then if we fast forward to Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, I'm just going to read it. I want you to hear. It says, for this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. 
John was preparing the way for who? For the Lord. And who do we see? It comes up on, this, on the scene. And he says, this is the one that I was preparing the way for. That's Jesus. So we can see a clear association between Yahweh and Jesus. The prophecy says he's preparing the way of Yahweh. And we can see that the one he was preparing the way for was Jesus. Right? Okay. Someone say amen. Amen. I feel revelation in this house today. Amen. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14 through 16. We're going to camp out here for about five minutes. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up there. Um, I just want you to see something today. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. We're going to go all the way to verse 16. And this is what it says. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. Right. It's Ehyeh Asher Ehyeh, which is... I am that I am. It's a play on the word hayah, which is a Hebrew word that means to be. Everyone say to be. It comes from the word to be, to exist, the one who exists. We're going to touch on that a little bit later. But let's, let's keep reading this. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thus shall you say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. Verse 15. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. Let's just stop there. So we understand that the term I am is very personable, or very personal, excuse me, to the God of the Old Testament, the I am. In John chapter 8, verse 58, let's go there. John 8, 58. I want to show you something. Actually, Brother Jess um, was talking about this, I believe it was two weeks ago or a week ago, two weeks ago, was talking about the I am. And I hope you understand now what it's saying. If you see here in John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. You'll see that Jesus continues to do that. And eventually they start picking up stones and they start saying, okay, now, now we know what you're saying. You're making yourself equal to God. And even in that moment, but we won't get into that. If we keep going, Psalms 18.2, it talks about how he's the rock. First Corinthians talks about how Jesus is the rock. Psalms 23.1, the Lord is my shepherd. John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Right? Isaiah 12, 2 says that he is salvation. And Acts 4, 10 through 12 says that there is no other name under heaven. Right? No other name under heaven. Let's actually go there. Can we open that up? Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Let's go right to verse 12. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says this. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. In other words, our very name of salvation, there is no other. You can try and look in any other religion. You can try and look in any other thing someone's going to offer you. But if it's anything else but Jesus, if it's something outside of Jesus, if it's something external from Jesus, then you do not have salvation. Is anybody glad that we've been baptized in the most revealed or the most uh, powerful name ever revealed? That is the saving name right there in the name of Jesus. And Psalms 136.3 talks about how, how Yahweh is the Lord of Lords. Revelation 19.16 says that Jesus is the Lord of Lords. 
right? Isaiah 7.14, uh, Emmanuel. This is powerful right here. Matthew 1.23. Let's go to Matthew 1.23. I want you to open up there with me. Matthew 1.23. This is something I talked about last time, but it's just so powerful. I would like to say it one more time uh, for those of you who were not able to be with us or not able to watch online. But, th- but this it says here. Ready? Let's go to verse 21. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. It says this. You ready? This is talking about the birth of Jesus. It says, And she, talking about Mary, shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. In his language, in Aramaic or Hebrew, Yeshua. Yeshua. That's what they called Jesus when he was here. And that is a combination of two words. That is the combination of the shortened version of Yahweh, which is Yeh, where you get that. And then Shua, which comes from the word of for salvation. So the name Jesus literally means Yahweh has become salvation. And you'll see this everywhere you go. You'll see this everywhere. Whenever you read, you'll see when it talks about the names of children, when it talks about Samuel, Shemuel, heard of, or God hears. And what, what does she say? She says, I will call his name Samuel, for he, for God has heard my prayer, for God has heard. So because of the name, because of the circumstance, she names the child because of that. Or they'll name the child because of the circumstance. Jacob, as, as his son, as his brother, excuse me, was being born. As Esau was being born, they were twins, both in the womb. And Esau was coming out of the womb. And they saw Jacob's hand grabbing onto Esau's heel. And so when Jacob came out, they called him heel catcher or Jacob. In other words, because of the circumstance or because of what was going on, they would name the child. You ready? I I want you to see this here. It says this, and she shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Yeshua or Yahweh has become salvation. So we see the name is talking about Yahweh who becomes salvation. Follow me. And she shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Yeshua for he shall save his people for he shall save his people from their sins in other words they were directly calling the manifest the manifested child they were calling him Yahweh the God of the Old Testament what does it say and thou shalt bring forth the son and shall call his name Jesus Yeshua for he shall save his people from their sins is anybody grateful for that revelation today that we can say we understand what the word of God is teaching and just to, just to the cherry on top, verse 22. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So we can see very clearly that the Bible teaches that whoever this Messiah was going to be, He was going to be the God of the Old Testament manifested in the flesh. So whoever that was, that is who that Messiah is going to be. Why don't we give God a great round of applause for his kindness and his generosity today. Amen. Let's get moving. Then we go to John chapter 20, verse 28. So then people ask the question, well, does the New Testament say that Jesus is God? Because Jesus never said himself, I am God. Jesus never said himself, uh, you know, I am God. Or uh, Many people will make the claim that the New Testament does not say that Jesus is God. And so we have a list of scriptures here, although this is in the 
this is not in its entirety, but this is a very clear just understanding of what the Bible, what does the New Testament say, is Jesus God? Okay, here we go. John chapter 20, verse 28. John chapter 20, verse 28. You have Thomas, a Jewish uh, man who followed Jesus. And after Jesus dies and resurrects, he's there amongst the disciples. Thomas was not there. And then Jesus leaves and they tell Thomas, Thomas, Jesus was with us. He was here. And Thomas, I can understand his heart being broken, his mind being torn, that the person he put all his faith in was crucified not more than, uh, not more than three days ago. And all of his faith just crucified on a cross, body laid in a tomb. And he says, man, I will not believe it until I put my fingers where those nails were pierced. And so I put my hand in his side. I want to see it for myself, right? And Jesus appears. Now, Thomas knows the Shema. Thomas grew up knowing that there is only one God. And what does he say? And Thomas answered and said, and then Jesus appears, right? Verse, uh, yeah, let's go there. Verse 27, thank you. It says, then saith he to Thomas, Jesus appears to them. Reach hither thy finger and behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless but believing. Verse 28, and Thomas answered and said unto him, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Now, if Jesus was not God, immediately we would get a response the way an angel would respond when they would begin worshiping an angel. There were times when angels would appear in the Bible and people would be so afraid. It would be so beautiful to them. And they would start worshiping the angel. They said, whoa, get up. Get up. I'm a servant of God just like you. I'm a fellow soldier just like you. I'm one of your brothers. Don't worship me. Worship only belongs to God. And so we would have gotten a scene like that, but we didn't. Why? Because Jesus was allowing that revelation to permeate. And the writer was allowing that revelation to show forth that what? We serve one God. And he has manifested himself in the body of Jesus the Christ today. Amen. And then again, John 8, 58, we see that Jesus, we read it earlier, John 8, 58, you could just put it up real quick and we can just see it up there. Uh, John 8, 58, Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Now this term, I am, in the Hebrew is very interesting. It means to exist. Everyone say to exist. Or it means to be. And Exodus 3.14, another version of that says, I am. When God said, I, I am that I am, it says, I am who I am. Or I am that I am. It means to be. And it's actually very closely related to the name Yahweh. Hayah. It's the verb that means to be. And it means more so self-existent. Now, I'm, I want you to do a, a thought experiment. Have you ever seen anything that existed because it wanted to. Anything, ever. If we look at these speakers, did the metal on the speaker and the wiring inside, did it come together and say, well, I want to be a speaker, so I'm putting myself together, right? Or the wood right here, or this pulpit. Do we ever look at the wood and say, well, this wood wanted to be, and so it was. Do we ever look at anybody here you look at yourself and you say, well, I wanted to exist, so, you know, I, I just, I made it happen some way or another. No, that, no way. Everything you've ever come across in your entire life was caused by something else. 
Even if you don't believe in God, even if you were an atheist, there is nothing that you could look at that says it came about because of its own will or it exists because of itself. You look at the sun, that came from something. You look at the earth, that came from a tree, came from a seed, which came from a tree, which came from something. You look at the ocean, the water, you look at everything, everything you've ever touched, everybody you've ever loved, every place you've ever been is a result of something else was caused. But that is the only, that is the main, that is one of the things that separates God from everything else. That's what put God, that's one of the things that puts God in a category all by himself is that he is the uncaused cause. He is the unmoved mover. In other words, he is because he is. He has no beginning. He has no ending. He is everlasting and eternal. And here is nothing, nobody like him, never will be, never has been. And so that understanding of his name is to be. Everyone say to be. Right? He is the self-existing one. He exists because he exists. There is no other way around it. And there are some other philosophical thoughts we can get into. And if you like all that stuff, then we can talk about it after. Um, but I know some, some don't like the philosophy class. So that's okay. We're going to move forward. We don't need to get into it. John chapter 1, verse 1. We went over this before, but we'll just go, go through it again. What is, we're looking at what does the New Testament say about Jesus, right? John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. One of the things that we teach here is that that word, word in the Greek is logos. Everyone say logos. Yeah, you got a lot of notes to take. I know I see a lot of people writing stuff down. Okay, logos. The word logos is thought or plan. It's translated word. But think about it. Every time you speak, every time you say something, where does that generate? From your mind. For most people, some people, they just say whatever, right? But uh, for most people, it generates from our mind. It starts out as a thought. You see a sister. You think she's attractive. You see, you see her worshiping God. She's the last one here at the altar call. She's praying people through the Holy Ghost. And this thought is planted into your mind. I wonder what she would look like eating pho across the table, eating pizza, sharing a spaghetti. As we catch the same noodle. And then the chaperone comes in the middle and just bites it from the bottom. <laughs> right. This thought is planted in your mind. Right. And then it, it manifests itself as a word. Hey, sister. I saw you praying someone through. That was cool. <laughs> you know, right? Whatever you're going to say, right? Hey, sister, that veil, that looks really good on you. That's a nice color veil, right? Whatever you're going to say, right? It was a thought first and it manifested as a word, right? And so we understand that in the beginning, we could say was the thought and the thought was with God and the thought was God. In the beginning was the plan and the plan was with God and the plan was God. Ready? Let's jump to verse 14. This is a very a beautiful revelation here of what the New Testament says about Jesus. John chapter 1 verse 14. Let's jump. And it says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So this word from verse 1 was made flesh. The God from verse 1 
was made flesh. And so we see that, we understand that the testimony of John, he says and sums it up all the way in verse uh, in chapter 20 in chapter 21. He says, "I wrote all of these things to you so that you would understand what? That Jesus Christ was the son of God." So that you would understand. We understand the concept and we can see that God was made flesh. Can someone give God a praise? Some God, give God a, a hand praise and just thank him for that. Okay, we got to get moving. We got to get moving. Colossians. Let's go to Colossians chapter 2 verse 9. Here's also what the New Testament says about the Messiah. says about Jesus. It says, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The term Godhead. Anytime someone says Godhead, because of our culture, people are immediately thinking about trini tr the Trinity when you think about Godhead. I remind you, this was written before Trinity was even in, uh, was even in a conversation. The Godhead is an old English term for Godhood or everything that makes God God, his essence, who he is. Another way to describe it is somebody's manhood or somebody's womanhood. Everything that makes them a man. Everything that makes them a woman. So the Godhead is everything that makes God God. It's his essence, who he is. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I love what Paul did here. He didn't just say, for in him dwells the Godhead bodily. He said, look, I don't want to get anything mixed up. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He said, you know what? I know there's going to be some of you troublemakers out there who are going to mix that up too. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In other words, if you can't mix anything up, don't mix this up right here. Everything that makes God God was manifested in the body of Jesus. Is anybody grateful for that revelation today? Okay, let's keep going. Titus chapter 2 verse 13. It says this. I'm just going to read it real quick. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Clearly stating it. There's just no way around it. There's that. Let's keep moving forward. First uh, John 3, 1 through 5. First John chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. Let's go there. First John chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. It says this. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it didn't know him. Next scripture, keep going. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that has this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. That whole thing was talking about God. You see, in the first scripture, it's referring to God. And many Trinitarians will, or other believers will say, well, whenever it says God, it's talking about the Father, the Creator. And then I say, well, in the very same passage of, in the very same breath, he's talking about God and saying that God is going to reveal himself and to explain that he's talking about Jesus. Can somebody say amen? Okay, let's move forward. First John 5.20. First John 5.20. 
um, open up there. And while you're opening up, you'll see uh, John chapter 10, verse 30 through 33. You can look that up later. That's number eight. Um, Jesus makes himself equal to the Father. The Jews are ready to kill him for it. Okay. And then you have 1 Timothy 3.16. It says, uh, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. We'll touch that later. That is, a, that is another uh, conversation almost. But there's something I want to touch on real quick that will clarify some things for many people here. It says this, 1 John 5.20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. All right, so very clearly talking about Jesus, saying that he is the true God and the eternal life. Now, my question to you is, why do we say son of God? Why does the Bible say son of God? Why doesn't the Bible say the God manifests in the flesh every time? Why doesn't God say? If we open up to Luke chapter 3, verse 38, the Bible uses the term son of God for us. But when we are sons of God, we are adopted sons of God right we have been adopted we've been given the spirit of adoption but the bible refers to three other classes of individuals as sons of God ready watch this Luke chapter 3 verse 38 which was the son of Enos which was the son of Seth which was the son of Adam which was the son of God the bible calls Adam a son of God right let's go to Job chapter 1 verse 6 Job Chapter 1, verse 6. Job chapter 1, verse 6. It says this. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. We understand that these beings that are presenting themselves before God are doing so in a malicious manner to tempt somebody. After this, Satan is going to go and he's going to tempt Job. He's going to bring wreak havoc on Job's life. Right? So we understand that whatever these beings were, they were either fallen angels, angels of some sort, but nevertheless, they were created by God. And then we understand that Jesus is called the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. So now do you see the correlation? What do all these three categories, classes of people, if you will, have in common? All of them, their existence is directly explained by God's will. Now, I'll give you an example. How many of us here were created by God? And many will say, amen, hallelujah, praise God, yes, he created us. Okay, amen. Theologically speaking, your parents created you. Your parents were the ones who went on that spaghetti date and then created you. And we'll leave it at that. Right? God formed you in the belly, in the womb. He saw to it that every atom was stitched together and every cell reproduced the way it was supposed to. But your parents were given the free will to initiate the procreation. In other words, if my name was written in the Bible, I would be called James the son of Jesse. I would not be called James the son of God. Because my father, but because God was not the immediate explanation for my existence. And Jesus, the Bible says that Mary was, in, was overshadowed by the Holy Ghost. Immediate explanation. Adam was created 
formed from the dust of the earth. And God blew the breath of life into the nostrils of man. And he became a living soul. Right? And the angels, God formed them. Or fallen angels, God formed them. Right? The angels, God formed them. They're all their existence is directly explained by their father. By the father. Can somebody say amen? amen? And so that is why the term son of God is there. And that's why the scripture says in John 3.16, the only begotten son of God. Because only Jesus was born. All others were created or were made. Can somebody say amen? Give God a round of applause if you're uh, catching along. Amen. Okay. All right. So I'm done now. First uh, Timothy 3.16. Can you go ahead and put that up? And I'm out of here. First Timothy 3.16. This is what it says. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Can you go to the first portion and just leave it up there? And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. When you get into an argument with people who have a different background or view of who Jesus is, usually when you apply scriptures to them, they'll be backed into some corner and then they will whip out this scripture and they will say, well, Great is the mystery of godliness. For example, many believe the Bible says that Jesus is the only begotten son. And many believe that Jesus, uh, many uh, Trinitarians believe that Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father. And then you say, what does that mean to be eternally begotten? Yes, the faces you're making at me is exactly correct. And the answer is, we'll never know. Great is the mystery of godliness. So then you say, okay. Let's bring up that scripture. Ready? Great is the mystery of godliness. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. What mystery? That God was manifest in the flesh. That is the mystery he's referring to. This is a term we call Christology. It's what does that mean? That God, eternity, was fused with the temporal ways of life. What does it mean that an eternal God, the everlasting Father, was also a begotten Son? In Luke, it says that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor among men. How does God grow in wisdom? He doesn't. God does not change. But how does the human body, the human experience, grow in wisdom while yet the Spirit of God dwelling in him? That is the mystery he's referring to, to Christology. What does it mean that he's 100% man and 100% God? And that's a whole nother lesson. I left you on it with a cliffhanger to be returned in volume three. And uh, amen. So did anybody receive anything today? Amen. Why don't we all stand right now? And let's go ahead and pray as we receive our pastor. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for revelation. We thank you for understanding. There is freedom here today. The truth makes us free. And we know that you have not left us without truth. That you have given us the power of the Holy Ghost that brings all things to our remembrance. Whatsoever thing you have taught us. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray that we may walk in truth. That we may not have a, a haughty attitude or a prideful spirit. But we'll walk before you in the name of Jesus humbly. With love and boldness in the word. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's give God a round of applause.